It's funny because, you know, people have been attacking me and, and in some ways attacking John for yeah, defending me, which, you know, I always thank John. I thank John for defending me. But they, they, they attack me and they think that I'm trying to like I'm tricking, like I'm trying to trick people and trying to make them understand that, you know, trying to, to, to like infiltrate ancient thinking into modern the modern world. And like there's this trick thing. I'm like, no, dude, there's no trick. I think the ancients understood the world better than you. I really mm. do believe that. And that's the reality I'm trying to bridge. I'm trying to get you into their their way of thinking. Not the oven, not the other yes. way around, right? I'm not trying to, to camouflage ancient thinking and trying to adapt it to the modern world. Like I know I, I really do think that the saints and the ancients had a better understanding of what motivates humans and how these these agencies function and how they manifest themselves on others. So today we're talking with artist, theologian, and thinker Jonathan Pajo, who I'm sure many of you guys know. Uh, we cover the angels of nations, dormant hyper agencies, and how folk, land, and nation can integrate with the church. A lot of what I deal with is the particular. And I think that a lot of people like Paul van der Klee have been talking about, well, people would say to him, oh, what's missing from the church? What's missing from the church? And I see what was so important about Jordan Peterson was the empirical bridge, right? The empirical bridge to bring people into this way of thinking, to walk them back from that materialistic perspective. But I think the other thing that's missing, and of course I'd say this because it's my work, but is the particular, is the particular culture's fulfillment, as C.S. Lewis said. For England, it's, the, it's Avalon. For China, it's the Tao, right? And even as you talk about with, you mentioned the angel of China, for instance. People have a deep yearning for, the, for, that, uh, for that particular and how that walks up to the church. Isn't that, and that's an important part of, life i think to walk it to getting people even towards the church as well though it's just not something that's often talked about um yeah well i think that if we understand if we understand this as a kind of fractal situation where the pattern the pattern plays itself out at all these different levels and so there room there's room for those different levels which means yeah. that in some ways you know, the idea, so a good example would be the idea of reaching a spiritual androgyny, for example, in terms of reaching beyond uh, masculine and feminine, happens by being a man fully, as a man. Mm. It, 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 goes, it goes by manifesting your particular identities in a, in a certain manner with love and, and, and fullness so that then they fit into these higher patterns not 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 treating them as idols not treating them yeah. things, as things to worship but treating them as a stepladder towards the higher understanding the the universal patterns don't exist without the particular they manifest themselves in the particular and so we don't treat them as mathematical just mathematical formulas we see them in their instantiations which means like you said in the case of england the very particular uh, patterns of ritual celebration um, that, you know, of narrative that the English have developed over time. Mm. And so it's the same for, yeah, it's the same, like you said, for, for many cultures. And so there's a sense in which I do believe that at least the way that Christianity in its best version 
was able to create bridges between the two. And so mm. right, the image of the missionary translating the Bible into the language of the people that they were dealing with. Mm. Uh, and so if you, if you think of, um, you know, um, the great, the great translator, uh, St. Cyril and Methodius, who translated the text, the Bible into Slavonic for the, uh, the Rus, mm. you have a perfect example of that where not only did they translate the Christian story into the particular of the Rus, but they actually strengthened the Russian identity by giving mm -hmm. the Russians a written language in which to manifest their, their reality. And so you see the same happening in Scandinavia, you know, with all the neo-pagan nonsense that we're seeing all over the place, people forget that the, the, the sagas were written by Christians, you know, in a world where Christians had given the, the Scandinavians a language, a written language, in which to write down their stories and participate in their stories. And so so I think that that's really the best way to understand this this reality mm. uh, is to understand it that way. Now, there is a problem, right? There's a problem which is, let's say, the problem of excessive nationalism. In, in, in the Orthodox Church, for example, it's actually a sin. Philatism is a sin, which is that we say that but then the orthodox are the most philatistic like in the sense that they are very much attached to their to their local uh churches but there's a sense in which we have to not see that as the highest point so, so if i'm orthodox i'm not greek orthodox first i'm not russian orthodox i am in communion with the church of christ but mm -hmm. then there's room for that for me to be fully uh a, a manifestation of my own tribe group you know family all the things that i participate in I think that's important, though, as well, with it's not for anyone else either, not to because we see a lot of the problems today. And I don't want to take this into any political realm that you're not comfortable going in. But this idea that we force it on someone else that we'll, that we'll make all these cultures ubiquitous when they have their own fulfillment, but also not saying that, oh, that it has its place is that also has its place and there's a place where that came from as well because you see with i mean you 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 tweeted recently saying um what the italian prime minister mentioned which was god fatherland and you know th there's a land for the italians right there's a that's where their being manifests from and being is informed by the very place it's a soul it's not it's something people can convert into but to say that we want to level all that out is a problem yeah, to create the to make the earth into a just a cosmopolitan playground where everybody just exists wherever they want and there's no sense of belonging is something which I think is, uh, which I think is, is, is wrong. And mm. but th th there's a way in which there's a funny, there's a funny situation, which is that the point of, it's funny because in some way, the point of view of the European, let's say conqueror or colonizer is still present in a weird, inverted, and um, let's say it's as if we 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 will actively say and actively act as if all these cultures out in the world are precious and worth preserving, mm. except for ours, almost in a kind of arrogance, as if we are above all these things. Like you know, we're mm. so evolved that we don't actually have a culture anymore. Ours is just this. So it's almost taken for granted, and now we can look out and we can appreciate all the other, all the other. Uh, it's a, it's the same position of people who take up a kind of 
soft universalism where mm. they just say all the religions are fine and everybody's religion is good and every and then you ask them so what do you do well i you know i say i told you all the religions are good i don't have mm. a religion i'm beyond religion right and so there's a sense in which i think that the surprise of postmodernism means that at some point it's going to slip back it's going to have to slip back in a manner where like you said the english are going to say hey you know there's some interesting things here. Like we have some good traditions. We have some interesting stories and we have, you know, when we saw the passing of the, of the queen, all of a sudden it, it flared up right mm -hmm. in an explosion and all of it, yes. and everybody just was surprised to see how much of their attachment was in a, such a moment. Mm. Uh, and people were fascinated. I mean, people watched a ritual for hours and hours on end and didn't know why they were glued to it. Didn't know. Mm -hmm. you know my wife said, I didn't know why. Like she said, I started watching the funeral from here. And yes. she said, wow. she said, I couldn't stop. I just ended up watching it all day. And she's like, I don't understand why. I don't know what it is that was doing that to me, but she just, you know, and we're not even, I mean, we're French, like I'm French. It's like, mm -hmm. like I'm not, I, you know, although in theory, well, she's you've, got, you've got some yeah, I, uh, influence yeah, from Canadian, the anglo so in theory, she, yeah. she, like she's on my, she's on my, you know, She's on my twenty dollar bill or whatever, yeah. but but uh, she's you know it, there isn't that as much an attachment let's say as the as England itself or the yeah, UK. I, I wrote, did a video about this and actually wrote a, an essay which I wanted to send to you for the symbolic world, which is unpacking this particular ritual in explaining it as a sort of implicit distributed cognition, as a calling to our authentic being in Heideggerian terms, a funeral as something that, well, you're actually missing something as part of your being, and that calls you to yourself. When a relative dies, that's part of your being with, as Heidegger would talk about. So if that's removed, then what's it calling you to? Why did your wife... Well, I mean, you say you're French, but yeah, you are, but there is an element of you that does have some Anglo-Saxon influence, influence, so perhaps that's it, but there is a reason underneath that, I think, and it's this authentic being which I think survives despite what happens with the what's pushed on us pro, with propositional propaganda about what we apparently are i think underneath all that in the procedural in the you know in our participatory knowledge all, all this stuff that we have underneath that authentically it still survives because we talked a bit about that last time we spoke um not recorded um about that is that you you were talking about yeah well it's coming to an end because it's brave new world plus Plus, uh, uh, 1984, and I made the point that, well, it, for now, it's still in our authentic being. And these things still are calling us to ourselves. If we can better understand what these particular fulfillments are, at least, and that's my work, which is this, okay, what does, is this authentic uh, Englishness? What is this thing underneath that's connected under Christ? That's connected, though, to what I would call the sort of overking which is the pantheon of our greatest heroes, right? Which leads up to that. Yeah. And um, so I think that's, that's connected to that. And, and, and what do you think about this? I've been thinking about the hyper-agency question a lot at the moment because you guys talk about that a lot, and I've been doing a lot of philosophizing into that. And what I've been looking at is this idea of a sort of dormancy that has a power because it's been unused, sort of like a... Think about it like an underground network of a, a system that's been offline for a long time because we've been materials yep. for so long. So like an in, because what is implicit ultimately? Infolded, an infolded hyperagency, let's say. Um, and I think you can see that in that ritual. You can see it in all the people marching and how people are looking to it 
I think there's something there. I mean, what do you think of that? That, that okay, you can have an implicit hyperagency that has power that's unnamed, that has dormancy, uh, that it is dormant, but has, has this sort of potential that's sort of untapped, like an underground network. Yeah, it's as if, yeah, I understand what you mean. And then in some ways, in a critical moment, then it, it like this moment, then all of a sudden it, 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 it emerges and it appears yeah. as being bright. Like you can see it, okay, well, actually, there, there is something binding us. There is something binding at least most of us together, you know, in attention toward in a direction. Mm. And so, I mean, I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. Uh, you see that, like you see that, for example, in moments of revival, and there are moments of revival, I think, in terms of traditional revivals, you see that in scripture, you know, the return of the Hebrews to to the to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the walls, then in that moment you see this this possibility of revival, of regathering. I'm actually doing, you know, I'm doing this commentary on Exodus with Daily Wire, but I'm also doing one on my own channel, and that's something that happens in Egypt with the with the Hebrews there, which is, you know, they have they're there like kind of a nation, but mm. they're they've been forgotten by God and they've forgotten the God of their ancestors, and then all of a sudden the pressure of being slaves and being, you know, there's something which at some point awakens in them, the connection. And then they, be, they reconstitute into, into, uh, into a nation. And so I think that, like you said, I think that that's definitely something which is possible. Mm. And, and it also, you know, it's like the world is a, is a, is a, the pattern of extremes is real, you know? And so if yeah. there's a sense in which, there, there'll be an, a compensation for the breakdown. You know, sometimes it can be unhealthy, but that, that's going to happen. And so as there's a push, right, towards a kind of dissolution of identity, there's an inevitable awakening of identity in its wake. There's no way around it because mm. you need them. And so there's a sense in which you feel that that loss. And maybe even the idea of the death of a monarch is actually a place to to experience it because it is a loss of a of a of the point above. And so it like in losing it, you see it. It's like yeah. you, you see it even yes. more clearly. So, and that's the same. Like if you look at the young people converting to Christianity today, mm. um, at least the demographic that I'm noticing is people, they, they don't convert to, let's say milk toast, uh, culturally adapted Christianity. Yeah. You know, they want, they want traditional Latin mass. They want yes. the liturgy. They want, they're like, well, why would I, you know, if I, if I experience the lack, then I want the fullness. Like yeah. there's this, there's this, I don't know. It's, it's hard to know whether some, some of it sometimes is, is a little, can be theatrical and overdone, but the, the desire. Oh, it's is, genuine. It's definitely yeah. genuine. Cause I've seen, sorry, seen the same thing. Yeah. The desire is real. Like the desire for something for that authenticity, I think comes in the wake of, because people think like you can see it like the progressives have this idea that things are just going to go in one direction. Mm. Like you just keep pushing, but if we just keep pushing, then you know we'll have this this like post-human you know utopia of self-identification. But it but that's not how things work because you know the world moves in in a wave. It doesn't go just in one direction. So yeah, I think I've seen that myself, and I think. The interesting thing is that I've got a, a group of uh, Orthodox uh, uh, Englishmen in my uh, membership, and these guys are the most enthusiastic about this stuff. 
you know, about how it, okay, this is, but also we're a particular people. This is the, about Anglo-Saxonness, right? About, about that sort of thing and the Orthodox Church. And they, they look into the past and they look, ah, look, we, this was the original church. This was the original church of England before it all happened, right? And they're yeah. looking into it and saying, oh my God, we didn't know this. And you see the essays they write about and saying, look, see, this is the, what the Venerable Bede was practicing originally. Mm. And uh, looking back to that and I think they sense that there's obviously a deepness in the ritual. That's also in our being. That stuff's buried deep down there. There's a reason why people go back to it. There's yeah. a reason why. And I think when you mention that uh, transhumanist, that transhumanist, it seems to be, it's, it's really it's connected to the material. But when I look at it, I don't know what, what you make of this, but what, I don't know how you feel about the, the goal of going to Mars, the goal of going to space. It's... It's like the rocket almost looks like a, a cathedral, doesn't it? It's pointing to the sky, but the Gothic cathedral was aiming at the, tra- the spiritual transcendent, not the temporal, not the temporal. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're reaching in the wrong direction. For me, when I look at that, I think what they're after, I think there's nothing up there. There's no aliens, none of that. It's not real. It's not, you're going to find nothing yeah. up there. And you're going to no, delve into it's the material. A, it's- it's a space voyage. It, it, sorry, it's a, it's a, it's a. The imagery of space and going into space is a, is an expansionary uh, vision, right? It's the vision of the seafarer. It's like going out and finding new lands, going out and finding new trade partners. And so, the outer space is not heaven. Outer space is the ocean. That's mm. the real symbolism. And it's, and so the imagery of going out into outer space is connects directly matches directly both in reality and in in the the stories that are told around it all the science mm-hmm. fiction that is told around it is related to it related to the encounter of strange strange races on the edge of the world right it's alexander going to the edge of the world encountering the dog-headed men that's what space travel is about and you know and because going into space is going underwater right it's a place of of death it's a place where there is no there is no life and you can get life through extreme effort, right? It's like garments of skin over garments of skin over mm-hmm. garments of skin. So in order to, to create a civilization on Mars, you need so much protection around you, like so mm-hmm. many layers of technology mm-hmm. that, like you said, it's not something which I think yeah. is truly uh, feasible unless it's a breakout moment. Like if it's an, if it's a flood moment, like if it's a flood moment, maybe that's it. Like if it's really a flood and the world is going to be consumed, you know, and then there's one Elon Musk, I think it's today posted an image of of a of a spaceship that was like Noah's Ark. Yeah. With animals so, going on it. Yeah, but he's so sort of culture jacking it as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't think he's completely like he he's a he's an intuitive person. I don't know how much he he, he thinks it out, but but see, I, he might be, that might be his image. Like that might be the myth that he's attached on. It's more like expansion and conquest. And yeah, I, and, he's definitely absorbed that. Like yeah. you can tell from his like of science fiction and, and such. But when I look at, there's an interesting philosopher that posted a video about Elon. And it made me think, I hate to say it, everyone. He's not our guy, though, Elon. He's, I mean. It made me think Antichrist, to be honest, because this philosopher talked about it. It's in framing. It's ultimate. He wants really what he ultimately wants is Twitter to be this dialectic that sucks up uh, data at its highest latency. So uh, truth as it's instantly appearing. And 
But the thing is, because it's propositional, it's not really truth that it will just ultimately disconnect from being. This is what Heidegger would say about it anyway. But yeah, I mean, that's just something that that came to my mind when you said that. Um, but yeah, well, for sure, he's a he's a particular. He's very particular because he, on the one hand, he sees he sees the way to resist, let's say, the oncoming onslaught of of techno intelligence in general as an arms race. That's what, how he sees it. Mm. He doesn't see it as a, you know, as if, if you look at the way that in scripture, for example, in, in the book of revelation, the way it's presented, it's like, here's this system setting itself up with like a name that you can't avoid with like a mark, you know, this, this idea of, of identity that, that is completely that without it, you cannot participate in reality. Mm. And there's a sense in which like when that, arrives like head for the hills basically right that's the image in revelation those that avoid it that that get that simply decide to live in the woods for a year and a half, or for two years or whatever that they're the they're the they're the good guys but whereas i think elon tends to conceive it as an arms race like as mm. as we need to be able to fight the machines like you know like uh but which is weird because he makes weird jokes in his in his even in his own technology. And so it's mm. like the Starlink is Skynet. I mean, it's mm. like it's those two names are just right next to each other. Mm. Obviously, the people who named it Starlink were thinking of Skynet when they mm. when they named it. And so it's like a weird thing where it's like on the one hand, he wants to fight it. But on the, on the other hand, he's building it. It's weird. Mm. Yeah, I think we also need to be aware that we do have to exact this technology. Despite, you can't just escape there's a lot of us on our, well, not our, I wouldn't say our, my side of things. Uh, we talk, everyone's talking about escaping this transhumanism, going out to the woods. People are buying land out in, in England, finding way, looking at ancient English law. And it's quite interesting. For, oh, you can buy, law allows me to build a house out here if I'm out here for four years or whatnot without having to get a permit for it. Stuff like that, right, to escape the technology. But ultimately, I do think we do need to exact it and use it for our own. For instance, for me, to... Let's say, I mean, we need to protect ourselves from these hyper-agencies, for instance, because you're opening a portal to your being when you connect to these things. So for me, I use the technology blockers, for instance. I have a timed blocker for certain times of day to make sure I'm off it. Because, because of course, you can have practices outside of that. Yeah. Meditation, prayer, and, uh, and stoic practice, whatnot. But... You, I think we can also use the technology to sort of help control it so it's a sort of, we can inframe it ourselves in a way. So it's in doses. So Yeah, we hope I mean, so. I mean, Chris, it's hard. Have to do, I mean, you're doing it. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Well, how do you deal with that? Because you've got Twitter, right? I, I, yeah. It's, it's dangerous. You get sucked in very easily. I, I posted this message uh, the other day. Is I started following this drama with uh, Kanye and all that, and it's very interesting. And like you said, watch The Fool. That's, that's important to see what, what The Fool's and seeing what it, The Fool brings up or whatever. But you get drawn into someone else's drama, and I just posted this thing saying to my audience that, don't get too wrapped up in, in e-drama of people that don't care about you on the local because you don't know mm -hmm. them and we're not supposed to know them. We're not yeah. supposed to know them. We're supposed to live our own journey and with Christ and such, we're supposed to live our own. And then we're, yeah. we, we, we were supposed to live in villages, right? So if you get wrapped up in some politicians, some e-celebrities thing, you're not going to live your own. You've got a destiny with your own people and on the local. It could be brewing ales. It could be, it could be gardening. But you can find that destiny and how you can contribute. 
anyway yeah yeah well i mean i use twitter as uh you could say i use i use twitter as a thermometer for my own health like that's how i use it in the sense that you know i do use twitter and it's there but i use it as a way to to uh uh, let's say to know how I'm doing spiritually and mentally. And so then I just watch what I'm doing on Twitter and, and watch myself and I see when I'm, I'm kind of going off. And so like the Kanye thing is a good example because you know, I've been talking about Kanye since, since what, 2016, like maybe, no, maybe 2019, 2018, 2019, but I've been watching him since 2003, really. Uh, and so, you know, I, I taught, I made several videos on him and now it's like, it's burning, right? It's like, it's <laughs> the whole thing is like burning. And I'm, and I real and I decided that I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah. And so uh, like a month ago, I made a patron only video, but now I'm like, I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah, and don't. people are like, Sorry. I can't wait for your analysis of the thing. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> it's not coming. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to wait don't. two months yeah. until everything calms down and that yeah. nobody cares about this anymore. And then maybe I'll talk about it to avoid that. Like, because obviously, if I want the clicks, I would do it right now. Like I would have done it last week if I wanted yeah. the clicks. But I'm just like I'm gonna. I guess I, I, that's the way it's gonna play out for me. It's to try to not to try not to get like you said. Try not to just ride the wave yeah. and get completely taken up by it. But uh, yeah, yeah. Twitter is the devil. Like Twitter is definitely. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a tough one. It really sucks you in, and it's also because it's. It's right now. It's also so entertaining, so yeah. it's, it, it makes it even worse to follow well, this stuff. It's protecting your dignity in a way. I was speaking to another ch uh, chap um, on my channel. He was saying how the machine, in another way, would use the wages to get you to overwork. And he was talking about how, as a working class chap in North England, that, that he felt that pressure, and, and he felt that, well, hang on, if I've got my principles, I'm not going to work on the Saturday, and I'm going to go out into England and enjoy being. So in a way, it is that. It's like, well, what matters? God and your dignity and this or that. And so that, but isn't it horrible that we're, it's this thing, it's this thing. You have to be aware of it. It's a force. If you don't see it as a being or something acting on you, then it will just possess you autonomously if you don't recognize it's a force that reaches out. We're also talking about um, going on forest walks into the, into the, in, into, into the forest right? in England, for instance, to, to sort of go into being to escape that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And talking about how a friend of his uh, went into the forest to sort of criticize his video about this and made jokes about, oh, it's just like Dark Souls. But he took his phone with him when he went out there, right? And what he didn't realize is what happens, in a way, the being reaches out from the phone into you. It just, it's connected. Yeah, it, would, it, has, a, it has a hold on you. Yes, it's not, it's, it's the cognition, it's sort of connected. It's like the tendrils. Yeah. They're, they're, they're connected. You have to actually literally have it disconnected. You, because it'll do, if you're a materialist, you could say, okay, it's your brain knows it's there it's unconsciously. Right? Yeah, but it doesn't matter because it still, it still works. And it, it's interesting because you can, you can, people now with phones, like what you said, this idea that it, the, the having the phone on you, right, it affects your behavior. It affects your anticipations. It affects, even if you're not looking at it, it will affect you in a way that will will really kind of envelop you and, and control you to a certain extent. And so you can understand if you, it's like, dude, now you understand magic, folks. Now you know how magic works. Mm. That's how magic works. And it mm. works. It's like a talisman can work. And it, it, it can affect you. It can affect the people around you. It can have a, it can have a, an effect on you and so you can understand why wearing a cross around your neck 
really can protect you and works there, yes there's all kinds of things that you can do uh, that you can have on you or that you can carry with you which will have the same effect as the effect you feel on your with your phone but maybe at a more positive way and yes. so that's why it's the same as like like you said for example a good example would be wearing a suit right or wearing certain types of clothing you know you can't avoid it affecting you if you mm. if you wear a three piece suit and you go to the beach you just will not be the same person as if you go to the beach and you're wearing a bathing suit. It, you just will be completely different. And so these types, understanding this is really helpful, I think, for materialists to see. And the phone is probably, it may be a good way. It's, a, it's dark because in some ways we're, it shows us our obsessions, but it, it can help you understand how the world functions through these influences. It's not a straightforward material process. Yes, it's like it starts to become clear what they were talking about in these whole stories and old traditions Gawain there's a reason why he brings his shield he's he's the reason why he all these artifacts they have with them actually have an effect it's like icons it's uh, there's a reason why you do you do the cross does something it's not just yeah. a thing it's a it's a rich it's a an acted an acted psychotechnology if you want to call, call it that um all these things and that's what is so good about the internet is that it has this hyper effect where people start to get it and they think ah oh, it's like the egregore thing when people are oh, when it's articulated them in engineering terms they see oh so this and then you can draw the bridge for them to say well yeah this is what happened on a different scale the ancients understood this it yeah exactly like- it's funny because you know people have been attacking me and and in some ways attacking john for yeah, defending me which you know i always thank john i thank john for defending me but they, they, they attack me and they think that I'm trying to, like I'm tricking, like I'm trying to trick people and trying to make them understand that, you know, trying to, to, to like infiltrate ancient thinking into modern the modern world. And like there's this trick thing. And I'm like, no, dude, there's no trick. I think the ancients understood the world better than you. I really mm-hmm. do believe that. And that's the reality I'm trying to bridge. I'm trying to get you into their their way of thinking. Not the opposite, not the other yes. way around, right? I'm not trying to, to camouflage ancient thinking and trying to adapt it to the modern world. Like I know I, I really do think that the saints and the ancients had a better understanding of what motivates humans and how these these agencies function and how they manifest themselves on others. So, yeah. <laughs> but but it makes sense though because if you think about it, before science, science is a very particular breaking down as abstraction pulls something out of its context. If your symbolic way of thinking. Before that, it means that you're, a symbol, when it first appears, is the most efficient means, if you want to think about in those terms, of understanding a phenomena. So if they're using this way of thinking, those overarching things, those overarching explanations, let's say, those things are going to be more effective now because the stuff that we're, we're dealing with, past classicalism, past Newton, now we're dealing with a high-end complex phenomena and that's, of course, going to be better for a symbol because mm-hmm. they, they, were, they were explaining things and understanding things in that all-encompassing way with symbolism. Yeah. So, well, that's why the, you know, the idea that you see online, like the use of memes to transform reality, like this idea of meme magic, for example, like this is a real thing. It, this, is, yes. can, this can actually work. Like it's not a, it's not a, there's, nothing, there's nothing super – I mean, it can be dark because it can be used for dark purposes – but it's not a, it's not magic woo woo. It's like you know, it's it is a deep understanding of how motivation works and how humans recognize each other as participating in something, and to create a movement through these types of images or these types of analogies 
is something which works. The ancients were more concerned with what works. They were in some ways more practical than we are. They were just concerned with what, and if you ask them, how does it work in the mechanics of it? Like what causes come together in order in order to manifest it? They'd be like, well, you know, whatever. It's not that important. It's, what's important is that it works. Mm. And so, you know, it's like I, I put holy oil on you and you are healed. And I pray over you and you're healed. And then you ask, well, well, how did it happen? Is it psychosomatic? Is it blah, 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 blah? It's like, That's dude, just... all that matters is that the person's healed. Like the, the other stuff, I mean, it's fine to, to if you want to spend your time on that, but that's not the real, it's not the real point. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a science word used. I thought that about, um, what's it called when you have a drug and it's uh, not psychosomatic, but the other placebo like, yeah the placebo it's effect it's like yeah, a, the placebo it's, effect it's a real effect in. it's a real yeah effect. the placebo effect is a way into understanding yeah. how how consciousness affects phenomena and how there's a loop of, of relationship between human experience and our own consciousness in that experience it's not it's not a direct causation humans aren't just machines that you act on and so but in a way like i think that what could be interesting and and i don't know if it's going to happen but like there is a way in which the mechanical, the discovery of the mechanical causes does increase power. And yeah. so, for example, modern medicine does do things that ancient medicine could not do for sure. Clearly, they're able to, to heal things that the ancients couldn't heal. But I do believe that integrating the placebo effect in the process would ultimately probably yield better results in the long term. Um but yeah, that's a tricky thing to do. Like that's tricky in our, in the modern world to do something like that. But also too, I think there's there's a term called hyperstition. Hyperstition, where where the, it's sped up so fast that stuff starts to actually manifest in reality. It's not just psychological, though. I don't think, at least from my metaphysic, it isn't. And I think this comes down to the question of Jung thought this. I mean, you could talk about his synchronicity. Well, he worked with Wolfgang Pauli. And I think this is a nice explanation, too, because when you talk with Douglas Murray, he kept asking this question, oh, but did the physical Jesus resur resurrect into the thing? Well, OK, there's two ways of approaching this. There's the way of approaching it saying, well, th yes, in the, in the sense that, yes, his metaphysic went into everyone and then saw it. And you've explained it sort of those ways sometimes. But no, he did f physically as, as well. And there's actually room in there. You know, Bernardo Calstrops, you know him, you spoke to him. Yeah. In his book, as he talks about Jung, a causal things happen. A billiard ball, it's quite possible for a billiard ball to move on its own, right, with quantum indeterminacy up. A billiard ball, it's a, there's a real non-zero chance of a billiard ball not being causal and moving because of that. And, and we know from the butterfly effect how that moves upwards. And we also know that attention does affect reality. You did half mention it in that interview. But there is there is a you can there's room there for that to even say that especially when the, yeah. the founding of world that yes he did physically miracle you know I'm yeah i do think i mean i obviously i think jesus rose from the grave you know the, the tomb was empty that's for sure something that i believe i think i hope i've been clear on that for people i just i just get annoyed when people try to get at the mechanical causes that's when i start to get annoyed and think it's like the text seems to obfuscate the mechanical causes like the text seems to on purpose not tell you how is this possible? Like what it is that happened? Like what 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 caused it from below in terms of in mm. terms of physical processes? The text obfuscates that 
at every level. Like, you know, like I said, the fact I, I've said it several times, it doesn't describe the resurrection. It doesn't show the moment is not described in the text. It, it, it then, it then makes it, it then describes a body that is not recognized by those that knew him and loved him. Mm. It then describes a body that, you know, that like appears in the room. And it's like, this is clearly not the same, exactly the same body mm. as, as you know, it's if there's something there's something in terms of the mechanical cause which is not is not is not being described here like not being clearly described and so to me it's it's mostly in some ways the way to avoid the problem of 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 being obsessed by that question mm. uh, but obviously I do believe that Jesus rose from the grave like that that his body rose yeah. but, I'm a Christian what, but what I'm saying is that there is an empirical uh, scientific room there for that to happen. A causally, if you look into Wolfgang Pauli, Jung, and Bernardo Kallstrup in his book, there's room there for that anyway. So it's it, and that's a an a causal theory. I know people don't love Jung's theory on that. I'm not saying I'm full behind. I'm just saying that for people like Douglas Murray, who are full on materialists, like, well, here is this. Here's this that says such a thing, especially in the founding of world, because it is the founding of world. Even if you look yeah. in into if you look into the material okay well the world's this thousand years old well the founding of world was that time. yeah yeah yeah. That's, yeah that's why that's why that's why i brought up the big bang in the in the situation of that discussion which is that he says something so improbable completely improbable happening and i'm like well your whole world is based on something absolutely mathematically impossible which is the yeah. big bang there but your whole reality is based on this idea and so why does it bother you that, like you said, the beginning of a world is is has to be transrational? That is how a world begins, because the the causalities and the rational part lays itself out within the world. Mm. And so every time you look at the origin of any world, you'll always see something which is beyond the world manifesting itself. And so the idea that it would be weird that, like you said, the beginning of a whole world in terms of a, a, an entire new world view an entire transformation of reality would happen in a manner that is not reducible easily reducible to 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 mechanically describable events and mm. and that that event would not just be arbitrary but would be the culmination of thousands of years of storytelling into something which is manifesting the culmination of those stories at the same time it's like mm. i don't know what to tell you it's like that doesn't to me that seems like something that is yeah, they just that that's how you talk about the Big Bang. That's exactly how yeah, people talk way. about it. That's your goal. It's, of yeah. course, they'll say it's different because it's bigger mm. and it's more. It was like, well, maybe that's how things work. You know? and, yeah. And on that question of sort of gods or high, highest goods, I was reading um, Gwenon. Gwenon. I'm just saying I'm anglicizing it. Gwenon. Yeah. Gwenon. <laughs> uh, he, there's a great um, quote in that which says, we shouldn't mistake the polar with the solar, which is the authority with the temporal. And this mm -hmm. made me think about uh, Viveki, who's a great, you know, a great man in everything he does. Uh, but what made me think of is this push for, is this love of if you put truth as your highest good. Truth as your highest good. It seems like that is sort of mistaking the temporal for the authority, right? Because when, when you look at truth as your highest good, it's, this is just me pon pontificating about this recently. I probably should have thought more about it before I bring it up now. But I thought about that and I thought, Okay, if you do that, an ultimate truth is the clearing, concealing of being, the is or the ising of stuff. There's no future with that. If that's your highest good, that's not. Where's the teleology in that? 
because that's what scientists seem to do. They say, okay, and nobly, that's fine. To take yeah, well, I mean, that's why, uh, that's why even Plato said that the good, you know, is beyond being. You know, it's, mm -hmm. I think that's a basic philosophical move to understand that the good, that the good is... I even heard Jacques Derrida say that. Like, I even yeah. heard postmodern say that the good is beyond being. And, it, you know, that, that's why, in some ways, even the postmoderns, like, their attack on what they called ontotheology or this, this, this like, worship of, of being as the thing... They were they were in some ways mistaking the good which transcends it, and mm -hmm. so I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe just may, I often think about that when I look at sort of classical liberalism types or this 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 desire to it's sort of a stepping backness, which I find I just think the mean you need that teleology for meaning you need. And I get why they don't talk about it, because science naturally, these people in science, that's their inclination. But I feel that that, that, that standing point is taking a value. Stepping back is a value. It's just, it's like ironic distancing in a way. It's not, there's no neutralness. There's no neutralness. This idea of the middle referee doesn't exist. It's actually a position. It's a, yeah. I've stepped back from this. It's an aloofness. It's a... Right, so I just think it's a kind of an illusion that needs to be broken in a way. This stepping backness, this abstracting, as being without value. Oh, I'm just without value. I'm just judging the situation. Well, no, you're not. That actually is a value of its own. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but also in terms of science, you know, when we say that science is embedded in myth or that it's embedded in something more, right? There's a, there's an there's a there's a sense in which the even the process by which you analyze something, even if you use you try to use this, abs, let's say more ob, just truth based categories, they are nonetheless bound by uh, bound by a teleology. Like the reason why you're studying it is bound by teleology. Mm. The reason why you are binding certain certain phenomena together is a purpose. You're trying to study something. It's a purposed study. That's why you have to eliminate facts that don't fit within your teleology. And then you gather the facts that are based on your teleology, which is to prove something about the, the physical world. And so it ends up being teleological inevitably. Yes. Right. And so the, there's no way you cannot, you cannot avoid it because you can't study everything at the same time because you have to choose what you're studying and you have to choose to study it under a certain facet, then as soon as you start to study, it's teleological because you are, like I said, you're only looking at the facts which fit within the identity you're trying to, uh, aiming at, and then you're trying to prove or disprove the theory that you are aiming at. Mm. But that theory becomes your telos. There's no way, there's just no way around it. Which I, and I suppose that the, the end of that is kind of, it's not a, nothing of all we're doing, of this, the machine of science and all of it. It's none of it has... It almost doesn't have an end. It's almost people would say technology is means to an end, but really it's become means to a means, which is what standing reserve is, isn't it? Making the world well, for, into standing reserve. Well, for sure, for sure, in terms of technology, it's 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 technology is just an increase of power. That's just all it is. Yeah, it's always an, technology is always an increase of power, and so the the mean the the reason the teleology is often hidden. Mm. In the the scientist feels not responsible for the thing that the, he unleashes into the world, mm. but the forces behind the behind it 
usually have the means, the, the, let's say the telos is there behind it. And so that's why technology is always, has always, and will always be directly linked to military power. It's just an inevitable, it's there from the time of Cain until today. Mm-hmm. And that's why most technologies are developed militarily first, and then they are, let's say, given to the world later, because mm-hmm. there's a direct relationship between power and technology. Mm. I also think, though, a lot of the time a scientist might think that he's not in that tech world, but that techne he's dealing with is, even if he's searching for truth a lot of the time, it's you end up still, you're part of this, you're trying to turn it into standing reserve. You're trying to reveal it, challenging it to, yeah. to appear in a certain way. And this is what Heidegger would, would say about it. It's still in that frame of the same yeah. thing. It's techne all the same. But And uh, the people and the scientists, how can I say this? It's like the person paying for your studies has it has interest in doing that yeah you know and so there can be ways sometimes where it's not malevolent like there's sometimes where it's not malevolent but you know it's definitely the people putting the money behind certain studies it's like there aren't billions and billions of dollars put into studying the color on butterfly wings right there's billions and billions of dollars put into studying the development of certain technologies biotechnologies that can be used to increase our power in some ways. And so the, so the hierarchy of science is a hierarchy of power and is a hierarchy of attention. Mm. Even though you can say, well, the science itself doesn't do that. It does it ultimately if, you, if you're able to kind of back up enough to notice how the attention is, is organized in the scientific endeavor. Yeah. When I think about that, too, is that how does one, if you're in that situation or even for all of us, I think what we really need to do first step is to really acknowledge not perhaps personal inauthenticity, but the inauthenticity of all of it, that you are in many ways an extension of or you're it's forcing you to be an extension, an arm of it. That's what the economy is. It's forcing you to be its arm. It pushes and drives you and challenges your dignity. I think if you acknowledge that, then perhaps you can find a a sacred place to to actually protect this sacred fire in you, because I feel that that's what so much is missing is people have been bored out. They don't have this vital force in them. So how do yeah. I mean, obviously you do that with church, but perhaps yeah. other family, ones. church relationships, like those are definitely the places where you can do that. And in some ways the stories are still there. Like if you're someone who has a kind of creative bent, then the need for good stories is always there. Stories that connect with people and that bind them together. And so I think that there's of course the, there's the real personal part, which is, you know, connecting to the people around you, participating in communities, you know, and then also having your own life of, of, of prayer, let's say. But then I think there's also ways to, at least now, I think that I'm excited, for example, like I am excited about the possibility of storytelling mm. right now. I feel like there's an, there's a horizon of storytelling, which is presenting itself to us right now in the wake of the madness of Hollywood and in the wake of the madness yes. of uh, of the breakdown. And so the hunger for real stories is starting to itch. Yes. Right. It's starting to itch people. And so I think that that's a real interesting opportunity to, for people to, to enter into that and participate. So. Well, the, the evidence is there for it. You can see the nosedives of profit. You can see that the people, because they're authentic, like I talk about, their authentic values aren't, aren't represented in the work. What is lost in, in uh, what they have in production value that's lost in their actual values that are in the thing uh, don't make up. They've been balanced. So people are willing to go on YouTube and just listen to someone tell a story. 
So as yeah. much as we want to be a great, you know, I'm, a, you know, of course, I'm a <clears throat> director, director of films and such. It doesn't have to be that expensive. People are so they've taken so much out of it that people are, are longing for that. It's actually a good thing too because there was a lot of propaganda in it before, but it was more subtle in a sort of neoliberal way. It was more subtle in a way because it's been hit over the head so hard that people are ah, this is wrong. This is and so they're looking, looking out there for it. And I saw you had a great conversation with. Uh, but he said a lot of the points that I would have said about how to make Christian storytelling uh, uh, proper, properly to authentically bring it into your being. But I think it is important actually going into some of those details, too, because I think like you like you were both talking about. Who, uh, who are you talking about? Martin uh, sorry, who, who? It might, I can't remember his name. You're talking about Paul Kingsnorth and you're talking about authentically engaging with <clears throat> being first and mm. not not putting a, starting with the message of Christ, not starting yeah. with that. But, and so I think David Mamet sort of talked about this as well, is that you don't start from theme. You're sort of yeah, he's been canceled on, too, huh? Yeah, has he? Has that happened recently? I, I think it's been a while. It's been a while since he, people really, because he, he kind of, he started showing his colors like when he wrote Wag the Dog and yeah. then, his color started to show, and then it, then he was like, "Oh no, no, David Mamet, he's too." No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, you're right. He, 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 um, I know. Look, I think at the time that he became conser- came out conservative, it wasn't Wokeville, so he was so famous and people loved him yeah, so was, much. Okay. He got away with it, so I think that that's why that happened. So I don't think he's really been fully cancelled. He went mm. on Daily Wire and such, so perhaps that's okay. happened yeah. now. But like I was saying. Yeah, you don't thematize to begin with. It's it's something that emerges from it, because when you look at the moral of a story, it's the reason for it's the the reason for the outcome of the actions. So it's sort of a contextual thing that that comes to you to get to start from that, and you can see this in how studio executives are educated from bottom up. Is that when you, they usually come from the agencies, right? UTA, and they're trained to write. Oh, what's the message of this? So you can see how mm-hmm. that happened. That happened is, and and then you look at. What happened with that is that, okay, say they uh, finance a movie and it's just a good movie. That's not going to mean much, is it? But if they finance the message and that was their virtue moment, that's something they can show around at parties and be proud of. So you can see how it's sort of spread around that way, that way of doing things. But yes, authentically, yeah, Tolkien is, is of course, the great example of that. The difference between applicability <coughs> and, uh, and um, what's the other one called? Allegory. Allegory yeah, exactly. Is a kind of propaganda because it's saying, yeah, sorry. You're no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I, I, I often, at first I was bothered because he would always often say things which sounded like he was saying, like, my work isn't symbolic. My work isn't metaphor, isn't metaphoric. And I was like, why is he saying that? Like, why, why, why would he say that? And then I finally got it, which is exactly what you said. Mm. It's like when he said my work is, is applicable. He was met, that's when he was actually talking about symbolism the way that I understand symbolism, which is that he's saying, like, here's a pattern story. And now you can see this pattern and now you can apply it to particular circumstances. But it's not a one to one. It's not like this represents the Nazis. Yes. This represents this. This represents that. Like, that's a, that's like John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress nonsense. Right. Yeah. Those are like horrible stories like that that are so overly algorized that they're just boring. You yeah. know, it's like the city of the city of sin and it's like and the 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 backpack of whatever it's i forget what john bunyan's images are but they're so like they're so they're the the equivalent of like woke uh movies now was that kind of really bad allegorical work yes. that you saw in, in yeah. 
it's that top-down en- enforcement of it, you know. I think what he's artic- what Tolkien was surrounded by. So he's what he's done is he's let it into his being, and he's articulating a truth. So what happens with a woke narrative? If you imitate what if you imitate the hero and their procedures and their outcome in the real world from that, they'll fail. If you imitate the procedures of uh, Tolkien's work, well, they that, that they're the patterns of reality. That's why they're applicable and they'll work. So yeah, it's a truth of being. I, I think a lot of Though, but what people don't also recognize so much, there are a lot of orthodox people that talk about Tolkien, but let's not forget how English that is, too. There's a reason why it was so successful in America is because of that, because of that spirit's there, too. It's, 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 it's a particular uh, manifestation of, of this. Of course, it's in the grand universal theme of it, but people seem allergic <laughs> to saying it. He was a professor of Anglo-Saxon, right? He's, he's it's obviously Anglo-Saxon. There's no <laughs> doubt. You can't. It, anybody who tries to get around that is being is obfuscating, you know. Yeah. And so, but you can see the Orthodox that love Tolkien or have that kind of, you know, like Richard Rowland. He's an Anglo-Saxon himself. Yeah. Like he, he's obviously he's this tall guy. You're like he just looks so Anglo-Saxon. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and so and so the, you've got you've got that that type of. So I think that's what you're seeing Orthodox in America because, in a way, it's a way to see a. Uh, a structure which is similar to what orthodoxy presents in this storytelling universe that is connected to their own, like you said, their own story. And I think it's important to understand that for people that are entering this sphere is that that's the value set that needs to be analyzed. And for Americans too. And it's something, like I've said, it's a soul. It's something that can be given to some, you know, it could be, it's not to, but it's something that to be, to be understood for it to have because the truth the truth in a, in a world of lies and what a, what a story that we've talked about woke story is is a kind of lie right the truth has the highest fidelity the truth of being the truth of the being of of a particular people um yeah and for you you you've mentioned some of the folk stuff that you do you mentioned uh, you've mentioned before that you did the french birthday cake maybe you could talk a bit about that Perhaps you just your Frenchness, your Frenchness of your yeah. It's harder. I back. yeah. Sadly, I'm a, I'm a, let's say I am not a good example of what you're saying because I, in some ways, I would say that I feel I actually feel v- deeply alienated from my my kind of national identity. You could say, and so I mean, just fact that I'm doing everything I'm doing in English. French is my first language, <clears throat> but I I I really at some point felt very deeply in my early adulthood that that Quebec where i'm from the although they have this identity that it was just it was going to the dumps like it was all falling apart and that in some ways the french canadian was was lost you know and uh and i i have to i have to do i have to work like i there's work that i have to do in order to bridge that gap in myself but it's there mm. it's a real thing mm. um and it's it, they're they're you're saying so it's a thing that's in your being that's not satisfied. Uh, maybe I don't know, but right now it's it's manifested not as a yearning. It's manifested as a as a kind of cynicism, you know, ah. towards my my participation in that in that culture because mm. you know Quebec went from being the most Catholic place in the world to being you know the greatest producer of like of a circuses in the world, right? It's like we have the Cirque du Soleil, we have like this circus school. Like our culture is like, it's basically that's what it is. It's like, mm-hmm. it's stand-up comics and circuses, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's like the biggest image of what the French Canadian culture 
in my opinion, has become. French Canadian watching this will hate me for saying that, but like that that's what I feel has happened. And mm-hmm. and so sadly, I do have like a project, which is to to I would like to create a because we have all these folk stories, all these folk stories. Mm-hmm. They're they're very beautiful, very interesting. And I do have a project to try to recapture them. Because I'm writing these fairy tales now, like I'm writing all these these European fairy tales, rewriting them in a way to let's say capture their highest meaning and, and manifest it. But I I do have the idea of doing that for some of the the French Canadian legends. Mm-hmm. But at least for now, that's that's as much as it goes for me. But, sadly, but yeah. You, for the work that you're working on, are you? Because I was thinking about this too when I was looking at the video about the points that were being made about what Christians need to understand about storytelling. And for me, it is important to understand the gestalt of where the audience is, to know what they think is a trope and what isn't. I mean, do you consider that? Because I tried to get God's Dog to read it to see how you formulated it. Obviously, you are doing what this, the be it, you, you, I imagine you're doing the kind of writing that was talked about in terms of uh, the, the wilding to actually let something into your being authentically then ma- manifest in writing. But are you doing it with a sense of, okay, what's, where's the gestalt of where the storytelling is? But for me, I was always keeping track of that stuff with yeah. screenwriting. Cause then you can, with the audience, you can mislead them and then go here and this and whatnot <clears throat> with the different tricks. Cause the craft is still required. The craft's not easy. You still need the craft of it. But yeah. Well, I, if you mean, I don't know if you mean in terms of like, in terms of what's happening now, like let's say the scene or the moment, is that what you mean when you say uh, the gestalt? Con- like I'm not content, sure what you mean. The content gestalt, as in, because you probably don't watch much of the stuff. Neither do I anymore, but when I used to. Well, okay, I'm- yeah, so I see what you mean. No, I, I think that, I do think like I have an intuition about, and I've talked about this, I've talked about what I call apocalyptic storytelling, uh, which I think that there's an interesting thing happening right now which which could be used by people by us you know to tell better stories which is the slip the slip from collage to symphony mm. and so one of the things that has been happening in let's say postmodern storytelling has a collage structure and there's a tendency to to kind of slap things together in a in in a haphazard way through all kinds of references through all kinds yeah. of uh, uh, you know, and so that's that's the kind of postmodern type of storytelling. The good example to understand would be in the fairy tale world because it's a it's such a such a deeply rooted one. You have things like Shrek, you have things like uh, Into the Woods, and uh, you had a series, a comic book series called Fables, where what they did is they took all these these uh, fairy tale characters, smashed them together into one story, but did it with a deep deep cynicism mm-hmm. and a deep cynicism about the about the story structure like a deconstructive attitude where yeah. we're going to expose the story structures the power structures of these of these stories we're going to reverse them and and show you how they are driven by power and sex and yeah. and uh, you know like you know the whole idea that like snow white uh, is a rape and all these all this type of, of of stuff and so they they kind of jammed it all together and created these types of storytelling neil gaiman is the best example of this right that's he gross. sandman that's what was sandman was all about that mm. american gods is the ultimate version of what i'm talking about yeah. which is this like smashing and taking all these gods putting them into a story but making them as idiosyncratic as possible in terms of what they are like they're not actual gods they're not actual principalities over mm. aspects of reality they're basically just a bunch of guys you know 
like squabbling over 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 some stuff. So, but what I think is is an interesting possibility now is to take something like that, but then turn it towards higher a higher good, mm. and so create yeah hyper reference and hyper collage situations, but then to do it in order to build up the story towards something more. And yep. we saw a yep. hint of that in in the. In the last Spider-Man movie, that's what they did, and I was really surprised at what they were able to yeah. do in that that Spider-Man movie. They use all the multiverse version of Spider-Man to build on each other and to heal each other's sins. Yeah. So each Spider-Man was actually compensating for the other one, and so you kind of had this weird symphonic moment where the way they're acting is in a manner to like heal their sins and the one of the other at the same time. It was a very, it was a, it was a really interesting like push of storytelling which I've, i feel mm. like i've never seen that like I, yeah. it was something that kind of shocked me and that and that gave me in my my opinion showed me that gestalt like what's the moment in terms of recapturing this stuff there's a there's someone i work with heather paulington she she works in hollywood and she she's done a lot of these movies in terms of set design and stuff and we're working together on some of the fairy tales right now and so she noticed that this happened in the 1930s. And so in the 1930s, there was there were two animation studios in the U.S. that were massive. There was Disney and Fleischer Studios. Yeah. And Fleischer, they did Betty Boop and Popeye and all of these like weird, weird, cynical uh, animations. And then they did a version of Snow White with Betty Boop, which is the weirdest, wildest thing you've ever seen. It is so deconstructed that you can barely see what the story is like it's it's mm. this all this cynicism and 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 weird references and stuff and then so then that's like the the height of that and her mm. cartoons Betty Boop cartoons are filled with demons and monsters and mm. and ghosts and things that move into each other that shift identities that are fluid mm. and all this stuff uh and then whatever like not even 10 years later Disney comes out with Snow White and their yeah. Snow White is a recapturing of the of the story and using much of modern um, modern storytelling, uh, using also the kind of cutesy animal stuff that was developed yeah. in the animation studios, but then gathering it together towards something which was extremely powerful. Yeah. And so I think that that's the moment we could. That's the moment we're in. I think we could do that. Yeah. We can we can bring back the true stories in a moment where people are are just cynical and saturated and tired, and yes. actually they'll br- they'll shine. Yeah, I think there's a movement out there right now, especially on my side of politics, if you want to call it. Not politics, it's cultural, it's cultural. There's a movement, and institutions are building, and they're not the big ones you see. Um, they're, the, they're sort of decentralized, where people are working on this. Obviously, it'll take a while to monetize and get these things together, but you can see that growing. I think what you were talking about there, I guess another way of putting it would be, if with the degenerate nature of um, uh, Neil Gaiman, he puts the dream god at the top, right? It's like you've got all the cynical gods or whatnot. Using that, if you use that in the, at the top of the hierarchy, you have proper god, right? The authentic thing that's fighting all the degeneracy of the other gods. Then you, that would be used for good purposes in a way, right? It's sort of united. Well, I don't know. Of... I, he's an interest. I would love to talk to him one day because he's an interesting thing. He's an interesting guy. In he avoids Christ as much as he avoids Christ. Like mm-hmm. that's for sure. Because he can't fit Christ in his system, like whatever system he used. In Sandman, there's a there's a one 
there's one story at Sandman called Season of Mists, where he takes uh, Milton's poem and his, mm. and some of the characters, like his Lucifer and, and these different characters, and he casts it into the Sandman world. And there he actually talks about the transcendent God. He talks about mm. the transcendent source of all things, which he never shows in the story. Mm. And so he has this idea, like he, it's weird. And like I said, there, it's like there are glimmers even in that type of storytelling uh, that could be that could be twisted. But then in his story, in the season of his story, Lucifer is the most fascinating, is the best character. Yeah. And he, that he's the basis for the Netflix Lucifer series is Neil Gaiman's Lucifer character in season of Mist. It's a, it's, it's, he's the actual, he, that's the character that is in Netflix's Lucifer series. And so it's like, it's like, it's, you can see it. That's it's why tough. I'm thinking like there's a, there's a, there's a little thread we can pull on. And I think that, mm. that, that really good stories can come out of out of finding the right thread, and that's the case with Milton too. Is that Lucifer was the most flesh, the real, the, the powerful character in that? Yeah, it's I don't know if he did it on purpose, but I definitely no. think that for modern sensibilities, Lucifer and Lucifer ends up being the most the most uh, attractive character because he manifests the modern spirit, right? The modern mean, spirit of independence and rebellion and. Do you mean with uh, Milton or do you mean with Gaiman? Because Milton, I mean with same. with Milton, yeah, I think with Milton, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, he, but for he, sure, like he didn't I think, do it on purpose, though. I think that he tried right. to make the other characters yeah. work. Gaiman made did it on purpose. Yes, definitely did it on purpose. For yes. Sure, Gaiman did it on purpose. Yes. Not not Milton. Oh, I was watching. But Milton did it oh. kind of accidentally. Yeah, yeah, you know, tripping into the modern world where yeah. all of a sudden his Lucifer character would become a model for the mm. the kind of Promethean spirit that embodies the modern world, yeah. uh, but. Yeah, but I think Gaiman for sure did it on purpose. Yeah. Well, uh, we're sort of coming up to a, a close here, but I wanted to know what you thought of 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 the UFOs. Because <laughs> I know this is a strange question, right? And I want to get you in sort of trouble or anything, but um, it's kind of just interesting symbolically what it's described as. I mean, my view is that I think they're a hyperstitional manifestation, and if you follow again, if you follow Jung. I think they're a manifestation in reality. They're probably there, but they're from us, fundamentally. If you buy into a sort of idealistic view of uh, ontology, even a cut strips ontology, then such things can manifest if enough people are, whatever, thinking about a certain thing. Because yeah. when, I, when I look at it symbolically, it's kind of like it's a, it's a, that's the symbol. That's what it looks like. It's a, it's a square inside a, a circle. I mean, if you look at that, I would say, well, Gwenon would say, okay, well, the circle's heaven and the square, that's sort of order. You could say that's in framing, kind of being enframed from heaven. And, and there's no dot for where the principle would be in the middle. Yeah. I don't know. That's just what I read into. Yeah. It. Well, no, I've talked about UFOs and aliens. Oh, I've done a few videos. I've done a few videos on that where I, I talk about the, they, that's what they are. They're aliens. They're, they're unidentified flying objects. They are the equivalent of the monstrous races on the edge of the world mm. and they have a they and so they also manifest the edge like they manifest the limit in the sense that they are they are monsters they are also hyper technological because it's like what's on the edge a wall like the, that's what you put on the edge and so they manifest this hyper technicity mm. and in a way they are they are how can I say this? Right, they're projections. They're they're projections of our desire, yes, into the unknown, and that's yes. what that's what the strange is. The strange is projection of desire into the unknown, yeah, until it until it becomes tamed and until it 
takes on a formal identity. Mm. And so the, the UFOs have all of those elements in in them, you know, at, from from the from their strange kind of monstrous aspect, the way they look to like the anal probing stuff. It's all this, it's all that. Like it's all mm. like why would aliens do that? They would do that because that because they're monsters from the edge. And they come in from behind, like it's like that's what that's what's going on there. They, they, it's all about it's all. So I think that that I think you're right, but I don't. I I think about, that they, they're they're a coalescence of phenomena. Like they're not. It's, I don't think that they're. Yeah, they're just, coalescing. They're real yeah. and they're in manifestation. But if you are the traditionalist view, would be it's a it is and it's a manifestation of of a principle that's behind it. Though it's it's from us. It's from our world bubble in a, if you're thinking about it that was an idea an idealist it's not the little green men i'm gonna walk out of them that, that's how i see it anyway i don't i mean i, I they, they they no one this is so the way to understand it is really has to do with the problem of the strange and so mm. let let let's ask this question based on 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 how people understood ancient races and they would say do the, the i forget what they're called the cyclopods or whatever like do these do these men with one leg do they exist? Mm. And then people would debate and say, well, I don't know. Yeah, some people say they saw them. You know, I've heard from a friend of a friend of a friend who say that they saw them. And so it's like, so that's it. They're unidentified. They are, they're monsters. They are strange. And so, mm. and so the question is, have you seen a green man? No. Like, we don't see them because they're strange. They're not, they're yeah. not part of our of our world. And so they manifest themselves as these types of phenomena. And so they have the same story structure as the, as the, as the upside down. Uh, what are they? I forget the name of, why is it that my, the Amazons and all of these monsters that existed on the edge of the world. Mm. Like I said, outer space is not heaven. Outer space yes. is the outer regions of the world. And so mm. it's just a continuation of the same stories. And so, yeah. And so, so if you saw something, so let let's 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 go deeper into this. Mm. So, if you saw something that you had never seen before, something that is beyond the horizon of your capacity to identify, your mind will have to identify it. Your mind will search to identify it, and and what it'll do is it'll it'll grab onto categories of the strange, mm. and so. A good example would be so the way, for example, the dog-headed men, and so it's like, do dog-headed men exist? And the que and the answer is they exist the way a stranger exists to a friend. Like those categories are not a they're not the same type. They're categories of experience. Mm. And so, so when so for example, so Alexander finds dog-headed men in in the East, and then uh, uh, the 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 Christians see dog-headed men coming from the North, right? And then Christopher Columbus, read his accounts. He saw dog-headed men the first day when he was mm. in America. Mm. But just the first day. Mm. This, this sort of goes with Heidegger in the sense that these things clear themselves, right? Especially back yeah. then. They clear themselves and they, they categorize themselves, right? The gods, the, these, these Yeah, but things. the dog-headed men just kept getting pushed further. Yeah. And they're still there. They're just they a little going further. Back, 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 and further yeah. back, right? Because it's back there. It's just how it works. Right. But outer space is great because outer space is infinite, and so yeah. because it's because outer space is infinite, it's actually a, it's a hyper version of the ancient map, mm. and so in the ancient map you would project all these idiosyncrasies into the map, and so you would have all these human idiosyncrasies there, 
And now we have an infinite version of that because it's like the sky's the limit, right? There's no limit to how many idiosyncrasies. And so you cannot, so Star Trek is a good example of how that works. Like Star Trek, the races in Star Trek are exactly the races of the ancient, uh, you know, the ancient maps. Because there are particularities of human characteristics that are taken to an extreme and now manifest themselves as this particular. And so what the Ferengi are greedy capitalists and the, the, you know, the forget the name of the the, the races, but all the races have have categories and they manifest those categories to us. And that's what it was like. And so the and so it's the same with these these aliens. So the the alien themselves, the UFO, the alien will manifest himself as in two extremes. The two extremes of projections, the up, the the let's say the upper limit of high projection and the lower limit of low projection. Mm-hmm. And so the the alien is either like a savior and is better than us and will save us from ourselves, or the alien is like a flesh eating monster that's here to destroy us. Mm-hmm. It's like those are the two possibilities, folks. Mm-hmm. But that's how it works, right? That's how that's how you project into the unknown, right? If you mm-hmm. That's what you're always doing when you're encountering the unknown is you're evaluating, like, is this person going to kill me? Is this person my friend? Is this person going to be nice to me? And so you're, you're evaluating that. And so, and when you, if you do that cosmically, then you end up with something like the, the aliens of the alien movie, you know, James Cameron, uh, whatever, I, I guess it wasn't James Cameron, the first one, but like the, the ultimate hybrid, the ultimate x- xenomorph with, with, that mutates constantly and adapt. It's like this ultimate monster, right? The alien in, in those movies is the ultimate dragon. Mm. Right. And, and so you have that, and then you have the, the, the God alien, right? The one in uh, that comes to save us and is better than us and will show us what we're doing wrong. Like, that's it. I just, I feel in some sense though, is that the way we look at it actually manifests it in some way the, that it's, that it's manifested in like, like, it, like attention affects reality, right? We know that it affects reality. Well, it's, it's manifested in the, in the strange. Yeah. Right. So the strange is a category that we deal with. Yeah. It's, it's harder for people to understand how that works, but the, so, so, so you look, right. So you look, you look at something you don't understand. So you look at obscure powers that have seemed to manifest themselves over you. And so then you have these you have these obscure powers that you can't penetrate. You see that there are powers acting on you. And there are people bo- moving the moving the parts on the board, but you can't see them. Mm. But it's clearly happening. And so wh- who are those men? Mm. They're lizard men. What else mm. would they be? What the hell what, what the hell else would they be? Of course they're lizard men. They have to be hybrid monsters because I can't see them. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't yeah. mean so. So it's like even I don't that, know. No, no, no. I, 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 maybe I'm the only person in the world who thinks. No, but this that's way, even so that's right anyway. That's right. Like Alex Jones, you've talked about this a bit before. Alex Jones is right about that in the sense of even symbolically is that a psychic vampire. That is what Facebook is. Psychic. It is a vampire of your psychic energy. It is true in its overarching structure. So even if you think about it that way. It's true, but I've, kept, I've probably kept you long enough. We did say we'd go for an hour 15. I've got to let you <laughs> All right, in. no it's worries. Pretty late. It's pretty late. But thanks for coming on, uh, Jonathan. It was a great chat. Hey, it's good you. to talk to you, Scott. Yeah, I wish you all the best on your project. Thanks, man. All the best. All right.